All right, welcome back to our series in Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 today, so open up to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Down the center aisle chairs, there's uh, two Bibles under each, underneath every chair, and uh, the, the, cha- the book of Jonah will be on page 502. This is our fifth week in Jonah. We've got one more week to go, so we'll, uh, we'll hit chapter 4 next week. But today we're going to be pondering chapter 3. We're going to read these words together, and once you find Jonah in your Bibles, go ahead and say, Amen. There was a few of you that found it. The rest of you are going to look on your smartphone, your tablet, or perhaps just cheat and look on the screen. We're going to read these words together out loud. Here we go. Then the word of the Lord, hey, <laughs> you, you, you threw us off, Deanna. Oh, wow. That was, that was a loud amen. That was like a church amen. Get it. Now everybody's like confused. <laughs> Here we go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw that what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for the day. Thank you for new mercy and grace that you give us. Thank you for the gathering of your church together. We thank you for the spirit of God that indwells us. We thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his death on the cross in our place, for our sin, for the grand resurrection of Jesus from the grave and the life that we have as we put our trust in him. Lord God, as we open your word today, uh, we pray that you would help us to see things that we've not yet seen. This is a familiar story. We've read it a couple times through, and this is our fifth week here. And so God, make your word fresh to us today as we ponder what you're doing in Jonah and in Nineveh in chapter three, and God, make it applicable to our life. God, we pray as we always do that we would see your gospel here and that it would have the power of God in it to change us and make us less like our sinful selves and more like you in all your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Who are the real heroes of our, of our day? I've been pondering that question as I looked and studied Jonah chapter 3 uh, this week. Everybody loves a hero, right? I mean, we look at movies. Um, you may read books. Our kids dress up, put on, you know, they, they pretend. And really, whether it's a movie or a book that you're reading or kids pretending, a lot of times 
these all have the, the same thing. There's a guy or a gal, there's a situation, usually there's a bad guy, and, and the guy or gal ends up being a hero. They end up saving the day. I mean, it's just something awesome happens, right? Everything is awesome. I want to sing that song right now for those of you that have seen the, the Lego movie. But in the real world where we live and work and play, I mean, have you thought about that? Who are the real heroes of our day? I, I can't help but go all the way back to history and think about uh, the likes of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he was 16th president of the United States, hero in every right because he led our country through probably its worst time ever. Uh, he ended the Civil War. He, abol- uh, through his leadership, abolished slavery. Abraham Lincoln was a great man. He was, he was a hero. Uh, Another assassinated president, uh, John F. Kennedy, um, short-lived life, but you can't help but uh, remember these words of his. Uh, Think not what what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, Those words live beyond him. I think of... I mean, I mean, who's your your favorite hero? Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, civil rights advocate, even on the Lincoln Memorial steps right now, where he stood in the March on Washington, you have these words, I have a dream. His dream is, it's still coming to fruition, and hopefully it will be uh, fulfilled in a later day. Maybe not in our day that black men and white men and their kids would, would grow up really in the harmony that he saw and that he saw that was espoused. In scripture, I don't know if you guys are going to remember this, but for those of you that were alive and those of you that were old enough to to you know put into coherence all that happened during 9/11. Remember that guy Todd Beamer? Remember him? Um, he was on the plane that was supposedly going to fly into the the White House and destroy it, like the one that did in the, in the Pentagon. And Todd Beamer rallied a bunch of the the passengers. And uh, this is these are the recorded words that we have of him. Let's roll. And of course, they they stopped the terrorists from flying that plane into the White House. Um, obviously, uh, several years of war on terror, uh, the American military, airmen, sailors, soldiers, Coast Guardmen, Marines. Did I leave anybody out? Soldiers. Those are some of those guys are heroes. Some of those guys and gals, they're heroes. And I couldn't leave out the, the single mom. That's a that's um, that's just a part of our culture today. Single parent homes, and those um, are heroes in every right. I think if we have any sense about us, we look at some of these people and what they did or what they do, and deep down inside, we say, I mean, these are heroes, and I want to kind of be like them. And when we say, I want to be like them, what we're really saying is, I want to make a difference. All of us, no, I mean, no one espouses to not be something and do something significant in their life. I think it's true that as we're little and we begin to grow, all of us want to make a difference. Unfortunately, something happens. Somewhere along the way, we get cynical. Cynicism turn, uh, causes us to turn in on ourselves, and everything else just becomes nonchalant. I don't care. Life is, life is whatever it, it ends up being. I mean, and, and that's easy to do. We can look at the plight of our own life. We can look at the ongoing wars. We can look at the economic trouble. We can look at a divided government. And we get cynical. And cynicism says this, that no one can make a difference in the world. And that really is the sin of our day. I'm going to read a quote to you. This is by Dorothy Sayers. She is a prolific 
um, Christian authors. She didn't write Christian books, but she wrote um, kind of like suspense, um, that, that genre of, of novels. British lady. Uh, she was popular in the uh, late 19th centuries. She says this in regards to the sin of our day. The sin of our age is not power-hungry materialism, as the liberals say, nor is it a, a permissive spirit of lawlessness, as the conservatives say. The sin of our age is to believe in nothing. Did you hear that? Believe in nothing, to care for nothing, to seek to know nothing, to interfere with nothing. She goes on to say, therefore, those who commit to this sin enjoy nothing, hate nothing, find purpose in nothing, and they live for nothing and remain alive for there's nothing for which they would be willing to die for. She said that in her book, Christianity Stands True. And so I think it's true that we commit the sin of the age when we pursue nothing in our lives. When we see nothing bigger than ourselves, our own needs, our own interests in our life, we commit the sin of the age when we give ourselves to nothing, God forbid. We live in an age where, you know, it really isn't impossible to find heroes. The heroes are out there. They're in this room. They're in our neighborhood. They're they're in our government. They're in all different branches of the lives that we live. Yet at the same time, our cynicism is real. And by definition, you can't be a hero if you're looking to your own needs, your own wants, your own desires. We have to have this grand idea that there's a purpose, there's there are things that are bigger than us. And if I can only rise to the occasion and and try and make a difference in the world. And so the question I have for you this morning as we look at Jonah chapter three is, is there anything that grips your life? Is there a power, a truth, anything significant such that it would impact you and make you impact your community, your city. My argument is that if you don't have something that lifts you up and sees a purpose in life, then you're going to stagnate, you're going to be cynical, and, and you're really not doing the thing that God created you to do. And that's what we see in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read these words once again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to the Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In Jonah chapter 3, we get to see how this man, this reluctant prophet that didn't want to do what God told him to do, impacted a community. How he actually changed the, the known world by doing something God told him to do. He made a difference. I spoke a few weeks ago about Nineveh, so we're not going to really unpack just all that's in here in regards to, to Nineveh. But, I mean, Nineveh was... It was the most significant city in the, the superpower of, of this ancient world of this day. When it says in verse 3 there that Nineveh was a great city, it doesn't mean it was like the place that you want to live. It simply means large. It was the capital city of, of Nineveh. Nineveh is present-day Mosul, Iraq. So wherever Jonah was in Israel, he literally would have had to only travel about 500 miles uh, kind of north and east to get to 
this place called Nineveh and its present-day Mosul, Iraq. Nineveh was a very, very wicked, wicked city. Wicked in terms of uh, what they did and in their brutal form of of warfare. So much so that God saw it and He wanted to He wanted to judge them for it, and He sent Jonah to do that. As we peruse these first five verses, I mean, Jonah didn't have a lot of words to say. I mean, you know, there's you know you know how you you have a friend, it's like dude, a dude, and he's a cool dude, but he doesn't. I mean, he don't say a lot at all. Jonah was one of those guys. Jonah did not have a lot to say, but I think what we see here is that Jonah was in the right place. And that is my first point. I've got three points for you. The first point is um, in order to impact your community, in order to, to make a difference, you got to be in the right place. You got to be in the right place at the right time for God to use you to impact a community. And so the question is, how do you know you're in the right place? D.C. is not the best example to to give to you in regards to that, because I I mean, there's not a few of you in this room right now that actually grew up here in D.C. Most of us moved here. We, we, I mean, we were brought here by the military or government. You came here for a job. I mean, you wanted to be in the big city. Something else brought us here. Not very many, not very many of us in the room grew up here. And so, I mean, D.C. is on the, I mean, it's on the list of like the top five or ten best places to live. We got a cool place to live. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things to see. I mean, it's it's a happening place in many ways. That's not true with every other place. I can think of some of the places I've gone in the military. I mean, like, get me out of here, right? I mean, some of y'all have been those places. I think, uh, you know, it, not disregarding D.C., there's some people that don't like to be here that may perhaps grew up here. But I think every, you know, everybody everywhere else wants to be somewhere other than where they are right now. That's just this part of our society. It's, it's in us not to be where we are. We, we think there's, there's got to be a better place than where I am right now. But I think this, I, this, the, the key to being in the right place at the right time for God to use you to impact where you are is, isn't in living in the right place, isn't in living in the perfect place. The key is in submitting to God in the place where he would have you. And we see this in scripture. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. I wear this verse out, but it's an important verse in all of scripture. And I want you to get it. This is what Paul is saying as he entered Athens and approached uh, some, some philosophers and poets about their day. He says, and, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. And so Paul is saying here that God in his sovereignty says, I've put you where you are. And that's, I mean, sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Even in your wrong choices, even in your decision and your indecision, God has put you right where you are. And some of you all are like saying that that's not true. Uh, I lived in a dysfunctional family. And as soon as I could leave, I left. Or you might be saying, you know, I ran away from home and I am, I'm here because this is where this is where it ended for me. Or maybe you're thinking, uh, I came here because I was offered a job, and this is where the job was. That's why I'm here. Or maybe you're saying, hey, Uncle Sam sent me here. I'm in the military. I didn't even ask to come here. I'm here because this is where they sent me. What I'm telling you is that God is saying, well, it's gone now. God is saying here that you're here where you are, wherever that is, because God is sovereign, and he, is, he has some control. 
of where you are. And, and so in your indecision and in your decision, God is in your location. And how do we know what the right place is? Well, the right place is where God is, where God has you right now. Where you are right now is where God would have you, if you can swallow that. That means you need to bloom where you're planted. Jonah didn't impact Nineveh because he bloomed where he planted. As we look back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, I mean, Jonah didn't even want to be in Nineveh. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite, opposite direction. It wasn't like he was going on a vacation to Disneyland. But this is what we see in Jonah. He finally submitted to where God had him. You have to be in the right place. That's my first point. My second point is simply this. You also have to be becoming the right person. That's probably not the right grammar. I don't know how to say that, but you get my point, right? There is something that God wants to do to you, in you, through you, but you have to be transforming into a different person than who you probably are right now for him to use you fully the way that he wants to. And we see this with Jonah. Let me get, let me qualify this. Some of you might hear that. You have to be becoming the right person and you might think that I'm talking about perfectionism. You know, I gotta be perfect. I gotta get my act together before God can use me. We have, many of us have these perfectionistic tendencies. And I think it's true that, I mean, do you have to be perfect for God to use you? Do you? No, you don't. And we see that in chapter, chapter one, verse three, uh, uh, chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You hear that? The second time. Saying, arise. Jonah is giving a command the second time. And if he's giving a command the second time, that means there was a first time. And Jonah didn't do what God said. Jonah, Jonah blew it. That's just what it says. Jonah goes the opposite, opposite way. And this isn't a foreign concept in scripture. Think about um, Moses. Uh, they were in, in the wilderness and the Israelites were complaining to Moses. We want some water. You brought us out here in the middle of the desert. And we have no water. And God said, Moses, speak to the rock and water's going to come out. What did Moses do? He, he hit that rock with a staff and God judged Moses for that. He, God put him to, Put him to sleep. He didn't enter the promised land. Um, David, when he was king, uh, one of the things the king was not supposed to do was take a census. He wasn't supposed to count the people. He was His trust was supposed to be in the Lord, not in the number of people that he had. And David got something in him that he wanted to count. I mean, I want to count them. I want to see how many people I got. Let's count. Let's, one, two, three. He counted. And God judged him for that. Crossover in the New Testament, and the, you know, one of the people I talk about often is good old Peter. The apostle Peter was the very first man to acknowledge that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And that same Peter, only a you know, few months later, denied Jesus three times. And God is speaking to us through Scripture, telling us that God uses our failures. Failing God is not the final straw, however, because in all of those examples, Moses, David, Peter, God used them mightily to impact their community, really, to, to change the world. I think it's probably wrong to even say that we fail God. I, I hesitate when I say that because I know that God, I mean, he brings things our way. He gives us opportunities to do things. He actually tells us to do some, some stuff. And, and when we don't do it, when we don't pass the test, 
it's not like we fail because God just, I mean, this is what he does. He like brings you, you, you just go around, I mean, you just go around the mountain again, right? Here's, here, uh, wait, wait, I've seen this before. Right, do the right thing this time. Oh, uh, this is what God does for us. We don't fail the test. He brings opportunities around again and again. We, we, that's what he does. And, and here's, here's the thing that we don't want to hear. You, you want to know how God makes us the right person? It's an S word. It's through suffering. I don't hear anybody saying amen. I actually waited. I was going to, because, you know, Deanna, she bursted out, amen. At the beginning, she didn't say amen this time. (laughs) Suffering. Say that out loud with me. Suffering. You can say that word. We don't like that. We don't like this idea because, I mean, we get, we buy into the American idea that we're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life's supposed to end up like that for all of us. We want to be happy and cool. But I would tell you there's a theology of suffering in the Bible. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. We've seen these verses before. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We all, I mean, we all want to see a sign, don't we? Don't, don't we want to see a sign? It's like, okay, so just do this. Just, just show me one thing. Just, just do this for me, and I'll believe that you are who you say you are. And so Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is an interesting passage in regards to this idea of of becoming the right person through suffering because Jesus is pointing, he, he really is pointing out how we do that right here. We all want a sign that God is out there, that he's working on our behalf, and we look externally for that. But what Jesus is saying is, is the sign is already there. Romans 1 says there's an internal witness to you that God is, is there working in your life, in other people's lives. And Romans 1 says that there's external signs everywhere that point to God. And so Jesus', Jesus point is simply this. If you ignore the internal signs, God knocking on the door of your heart, like, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me, then there's no way that you're going to pay attention to an external sign as well. And so this is what Jesus says to these religious people. He says, all right, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not the sign that you want to see. It's not the sign that you expect. I'm going to, I'm the most powerful person in the universe, and I'm going to show you the sign that God is in you, working amongst you. And it's a sign of weakness, not strength. I'm going to allow men like you to crucify me, and they're going to put me in a grave, the, the ultimate display of weakness. And then when we look back to Jonah, he likens, he likens this to Jonah. Jonah is a type of Christ. In other words, we see Jesus in what Jonah does. And and if you look at Jonah's life, Jonah is a pretty cool kid in Jonah chapter one, verse one. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And from then on, Jonah had a hard time. We don't know what Jonah was like as a prophet before that, speaking, uh, foretelling prophecies uh, of kings of of Israel. 
But we know that after Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Jonah had a hard time at life. We don't see a good picture of Jonah here. And God brought the man to weakness. Jonah, God told Jonah, go. Go tell Nineveh to repent. Jonah went the opposite direction. The next thing we know, Jonah's on a boat. A storm comes. He gets tossed over into the storm. And what do you know? This big fish comes and claps Jonah, Jonah up. And it's not like the fish kept Jonah in its mouth. Jonah was swallowed. Jonah, chapter 2, it doesn't give us this imagery. I just have a vivid imagination. Jonah was swallowed into the belly of this fish, right? And so he's got this nasty um, gastric fish juice just all on his body. He's probably, you know, the fish's body is probably convulsing, trying to, trying to digest Jonah. I mean, have you ever thought about what goes on in your tummy when your food is? Isn't that nasty? Don't you want to say yuck like three times? This is, this is what's going on with Jonah in his person. This fish is like, you feel, he, Jonah, he can't breathe. He's convulsing. And this, all this nastiness is happening. And then, the fish vomits Jonah out. I mean, you've seen vomit, right? The fish vomits Jonah out. So all that nasty stuff is like vomited on top of Jonah. And so it just, in my mind, Jonah's, he's on the land now. He travels, he travels to, to Nineveh. When he gets to Nineveh, he's, he's like whitewashed. I mean, when you're inside of an enclosed space like that, I mean, whatever color skin you are, you're going mean, to be like bleach. He's going to be bleached, like ghost looking. So he probably stunk like the Dickens, like nasty. So Jonah walks up to Nineveh, and they're going to be, I mean, they're going to repent and fall down and worship God just because he looks, hard, he looks and smells horrible. But Jonah is a picture of weakness. God brought him down to his knees. Why is that? Because, I mean, Jonah is a picture of suffering. God had to make him suffer. God has to, if you can handle this, God had to wound him, not, not a, a puncture in his skin, but God had to, to, to take him through some pain to make him useful because suffering makes you a servant. And that may seem unfair to some of you, but if you can embrace just that idea that God does something in us through character and pain, he grows us. Uh, think about this. I mean, have you ever met someone that, that they're just, ad, they're just an adamant supporter of of organizations that labor for to take care to take care, uh, to take care of kids with birth, birth defects, and usually when you see an advocate for you know children born with birth defects, that means they've been they've been affected by that, right? They probably have that in their family. And if you see someone that's an advocate for drunk driving, typically they've been affected by a drunk driver. Somebody's been killed, or somebody's been hurt, or perhaps I mean somehow they've been affected by that. Suffering makes you useful. It makes you get your eyes off of yourself and your plight and put them back onto God and his purposes. I, I honestly think this. Suffering is a gift for us, folks. Don't despise God's suffering. It makes you grow in ways that you'll not grow in any other way. We see this in first, uh, Philippians 1.29. This is a crazy verse. Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, for it has been granted to you, not to me, not to those people out there, but to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is our calling, guys. There's something in suffering that God has for all of us if you would lend yourself to it. Suffering gets your eyes off of yourself. 
You know, many of us think that God is, is going to use us, but we've got to get all of our life together. And verses like this tell us, I mean, that's not the way it happens. It's not like that. It's just the opposite. You got to realize that you may never get your life quite. I mean, it may not be never. Per, it may never be perfect. In fact, some of you probably just need to acknowledge you're a mess. I mean, I was thinking about I was thinking that about myself this week. Jonah's a mess. He probably was a cool guy. Up, you know, up before uh, Jonah chapter one one. But Jonah is a mess. You know, we can have some parts of our life together, but there's some parts that can be just a mess. And I'm looking at some of my, my parts of my life it's like, Jeff, you're a mess. But somehow, I mean, I know that God is working through that. He's working suffering in me. He's trying to make me the person that he wants me to be, not necessarily the person that I want to be. You know, we think that we got to be intelligent, have all this ability and do all these great things for God to use us. But through Jonah, we're seeing that that's, that's just not the case. God is not interested in your ability. He wants your availability. He just wants to use you. God wants your service and he gets us as servants when he makes us suffer. This is how God impacts a community. This is how he changes the world. He changes you. You ever thought about that? He changes you. If he doesn't change us, the world doesn't get changed. God changes you. He puts passion in you. He puts purpose in you. And you go out and you impact the community. And really, theologically, all this is, is this is talking about sanctification. This is talking about God making you progressively through something that you aren't right, aren't right now. Uh, I like Wayne Grudem's definition of sanctification. This comes from his his huge thousand page book on uh, systematic theology. Wayne Grudem says sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual life. You got to know that sanctification, according to Wayne Grudem, and he's right, it's not just God like zapping you and and taking away all your sin um, no bad thoughts, no bad actions. It's, it's God working in you to change your heart because that's what true change is. But it's also you agreeing with the process and actually doing some things. You know, sometimes we, you know, as Christians, we just say, all right, God, do it. Do it now. Do it quick because I can't take this life anymore. And we expect that that's going to work. But that's not how God works. He works by the Holy Spirit. He does work miraculously. He does things in us that we don't understand. You know, one morning we wake up and we don't have this the problem that we might have yesterday. But generally, it's a progressive work and God is doing it with your agreement. There's a story about this guy. He was in a, a coastal town and uh, there was a flood. A levee broke and I mean, the whole town flooded, like, like eight, ten feet worth of, of water on the ground. Um, everybody evacuated. This one particular guy didn't evacuate in time. So he stuck at his house, ends up going uh, outside of his house on the rooftop. I mean, it's, it's that kind of a flood, one of those Louisiana kind of, kind of a floods, for those of you who remember that in Louisiana. And, uh, and so he prays to God. He's Christian. He said, Lord, help me. Deliver me somehow. Get me out of this mess because I didn't leave in time. And so a few hours later, uh, a dude comes by on a, a John boat and hey, I'm walking. I'm, I'm, I'm rowing through the through the neighborhood. Everybody else is gone. Why are you still here? Come on now. Let me help you out. And the guy says, hey, no, I prayed to God. He's going to deliver me. 
And so he, he waves the guy on off. He, he takes off. And then a few hours later, another John Boat guy comes by. And he's like, hey, what are you still doing here? This is dangerous. The water's not reciting yet, receding yet. And he says, come on down. I'll, I'll help you get away. And the guy says, no, hey, I prayed to God. He's going to deliver me. And uh, unfortunately, the guy died. I mean, the water just kept rising. Yeah, he died. And so he goes to heaven. Uh, he gets to the pearly gates. He meets Jesus. <laughs> he says, Jesus, I'm a Christian. I prayed for you to deliver me. What, what happened? And uh, Jesus looks at him and says, you know, it was one of those crazy looks Jesus can give you. And he just said, hey, dude, your praying was cool. I heard it. But I, I answered your prayer. I sent two boats. Um, and you didn't get in either one of them. Um, that's supposed to be funny. Sometimes we have this sense that God is going to you know, magically do things for us because, you know, because we pray. And I say that hesitantly because I don't want you all to hear that. I'm, I'm not speaking heresy, but almost like G, almost like the disciples praying for praying for somebody. And Jesus says, you need a little bit more than prayer. You're going to have to fast with this one, too. It's, it's almost like that. Sanctification, God, God working in us things that we, you know, we can't work in ourselves is, is absolutely his work. Changing our heart is something that we can't do for ourselves. But when God is using us to change his world and he's working things in us and working things out of us, we have a part to play. We have a part to agree with God in that. All right, so you have to be in the right place, which is wherever you are. You have to become the right person, which is the process of sanctification. And lastly, you have to have the right message. And surprisingly, Jonah had the right message. Verse four. Verse four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. According to the text, Jonah had eight. He had eight words. That's not a lot of words. And so. um, Scholars would say there likely were more words. Okay, so I'm just going to help you out. There were more words that Jonah said here. How do we know that? Well, because when you look down at verse 9 and 10, um, somehow the, um, the king of Nineveh knows that they have to repent. So Jonah's message had to have been more than, you know, God's going to blast you if you don't get right. Okay. There, there were more words. So just take my Take my word for that and, and go research it for yourself in some commentaries if you'd like. But Jonah did have the right message. Jonah's message was a message of redemption. And the message of redemption has two parts to it. One is law and one is, one is grace or one is gospel. The law says we're more sinful and wicked than we care to believe. And that's the message that Jonah took to Nineveh. And Jonah basically came to Nineveh and said, hey, dudes, you are wicked. You're, you're brutal God sees it and he's going to judge you. You're more wicked than you could ever imagine. I know you think you're the most powerful nation on earth, but you're also wicked and God judges wickedness. And this is the law. When you think of the law, you should think of, firstly, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the moral law that God gave to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, you know, in the 21st century, we really don't pay attention to the Ten Commandments, the, those moral laws. Don't, you know, don't idolatry, don't, don't, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, honor your mother and father. We just think those are nice sayings that, you know, that some person in the ancient of days wrote, even if God gave them to us. 
But to tell you the truth, the, the Ten Commandments, moral laws, never go away. They're eternal, and they're meant for us today as well. And so, so, so much so, in the New Testament, Jesus takes these Ten Commandments and reduces them to two things. There's a lawyer that comes to Jesus in the, in the Gospels, and he says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. And he says, a second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The two things are love God, love people. I mean, you can't get any better than that. That's what you're supposed to be doing in life for all the ages. And so here's the problem with that. We don't do either one of those very well. We don't love God fully, and we don't love our neighbor like ourselves all the time perfectly either. And that's what the law reminds us. The law reminds us God has a standard, and the standard is perfection, and it's, and it's represented right here, God's word to us. And we fail God's word all the time. You know, a lot of times we compare ourselves to other people. And it's like, well, look at that. Look what that person's doing. There's, I mean, their sins are much greater than mine. That's the wrong way to look at it. God says, don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to this. And this is, this is God's character. His moral commands are his character toward us, and God demands perfection. There's a New Testament verse, Romans 3.23. It says, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so when we compare ourselves to other people instead of God's standard, I mean, we're still sinning nonetheless. God goes on to say uh, in Romans 6.23, Paul goes on to say in Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. And so by the, the rules of the law, we deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin. And so that's what Jonah is, that's what he's doing in, in, in verse 4. He's laying, he's like, you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Remember that when you were a kid? Y'all didn't grow up in the South like I did. I mean, we would, you're in trouble with a capital T. God, you're going to get in trouble. That's what Jonah does in verse 4. Some of y'all got that. But that's really what God is saying to us, too. When we, when, we aren't, when we don't meet the perfection that God demands, he's like, you're in trouble. And the only way you can get out of it, repent. And the king got this. Verse 6 through 10. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. That means he was repentant. And he issued a proclamation. He told all the city of Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. He called a fast. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man or beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Somehow he knew there was a God out there that was greater than himself. Let everyone turn from his evil, from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. He was, he was saying, let's not do the, the brutal, wicked warfare that we've been doing uh, heretofore. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When he saw what they did, how God turned from, when God saw what they did, how, he, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The king got it. I don't know how he got it. Somehow he heard this message, a message of judgment, but he also heard the other side of the message, which is, a, which is the gospel, it's a message of grace. The message of judgment says you are more wicked than you absolutely know that you are. And we should hear that because that's our lot as well. 
But this is the other side of the message of, uh, of redemption. It's that God loves us more than we could possibly ever know. Did you hear that? You're, you're wicked. You got some bad things in you. There's nothing good in you that merit God's favor. But the other side of that is a, is a beautiful message, and it's a message of hope. And it's that in the gospel, God loves you. You're his beloved. You're adopted. There's nothing that would separate you from his love, and it's because of Jesus. And that's a beautiful message. And they got that. They got the gospel. And so here's how we apply this. You know, the next time that you're fixing yourself up, you're putting on some nice clothes and you're going out in front of your favorite friends, whoever you want to look good in, because when they say that you look good, it makes you feel good. Know that, I mean, it's it's okay to look good. It's okay for your for your friends to, to think that you look good. But when that's when, I mean, when that is more important than you, than anything else, you already have that. You have it in the love of God that he displays for you on the cross in Jesus. And so when you look to the opposite sex for affirmation and love, you already have that. You have it in the love of God displayed on the cross, Jesus dying for you in the place for your sins. When, when you when you try to make good grades because you think you're going to be affirmed by that, when you try to climb the success ladder in your job because that is what makes you feel good about yourself, all those ways that we try to prove ourselves to ourselves and make ourselves look good before other people, you got it already. You got it in the gospel. Jesus died for you for your sin. You weren't deserving. He did it for you. And that makes you okay. And this is what Jonah said to Nineveh. And the whole city was changed. I mean, this is crazy. When we cross over to chapter four, we'll look at next week, 120,000 people came to faith. And that's like in, in the ancient Near East, that's like New York City. I mean, that's like New York City. Everybody like dropping all the debauchery that they're doing and and embracing God. And we look at that and say, that must have been something special going on. And I would tell you, yeah, that was something special going on, but it wasn't an anomaly. We've seen this in America. There was a time in the 1740s called the Great, Great Awakening when, I mean, just... The Spirit of God came in and there was a turning of hearts from sin back to God. So much so that in a year's time, 1741-ish, 50,000 people came to faith. There's like 10 colleges that were that were created for the, the purpose of training pastors and helping people become people of faith. Listen to some of these some of these uh, some of these colleges. They're still around today. Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, Dartmouth, a whole nation was transformed during the Great Awakening. Why? Because that the nation heard a message of the gospel, that, that you're wicked and God's going to judge you. But the other side of that is your love in the gospel. Jesus died for you in your place for your sin. And that's the message for us today. You know, the goal of God in his world, the way that he wants to impact it is, is really through a message of redemption. A message of redemption. Redemption is God buying back. It's God making right all that's wrong because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And so when I when I encourage you, why do you need to have, why do you need to be in the right place? Why do you need to be, be becoming the right persons? Why do you need to have the right message? It's because God loves people and God redeems his people through people like you. So when you get, when, when you are impacted by the love of God, you go out and you're, you have passion and purpose to go and impact 
your community. And when you impact the community, you impact the city. And when you impact the city, you impact the world. That's how God does it. It's crazy, but he does it through people like us, messed up, crazy people like us. Here's my point. We look at the great awakening and and think that's a pretty cool thing, but God can do this right in the midst of where we are. He can do it in your office. He can do it in your school. He can do it in your neighborhood. He can do it wherever you go. Why? Because you're the key. You, 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 you. You're the key. What could God do through you if you let him? Last verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble. He's talking about us. This is, this is not, these aren't great words. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in the world to shame the strong. Has the word of the Lord come to you this morning like it did to Jonah? Is God speaking to you? Is it the first, the second, perhaps even the third time? What will it take you to say yes? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we're thankful when you help us to see ourselves in it. Both that part of us that's not quite right, that part of us that's sinful, that part of us that that needs transformation. And we thank you that you show us glimpses of who we can be with your help. And so we cry out, Holy Spirit, come help. Help in a time of need. Some of us need you greatly uh, to show us areas of our life where we are messed up, where we have missed a mark, where we're sinful and don't even know it. So would you open the eyes of those here today who perhaps have never thought of themselves as a sinful person, who are wicked and who are doing things in their life that you don't like, that your Bible would speak against. And God, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us know that we, like the Ninevites, need grace. We need to hear the message of the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. Would you bring someone to faith here in this room that would acknowledge today that they're sinful and they need a Savior? His name is Jesus. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us see that the way that you impact our community, the way that you change a city, that you change a world is, is through people like us. People who are at various stages of doing okay in life. People who don't have it all together. Would you take us and our willingness, give us purpose and passion, help us to see something greater than ourselves? and would you turn simple people into heroes just, just by caring and that we would be people that make an impact on our community. Lord, would you use us? Change us that we might change the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.